Okay. We just had a little bit of a technical issue, but we are back. Welcome to episode six of the Break Magazine podcast. We were five minutes in and I hadn't realized we were in the wrong place. So this week's podcast is entirely about the kind of concept of how to be better at adventure, how to embrace adventure, how to kind of get over hurdles and deal with the kind of pitfalls that come into... Oh, uh, that come with doing that. And then... So for me, sorry about that, Uh, we had a little technical issue. So for me, adventure is like a really subjective uh, term. It kind of has really different meanings for everybody. And so what makes an adventure for me can be really different to someone else. But the consistent theme across all of that is that adventure, I think for most people lies when they get to the edge of their comfort zone. You've got that kind of perfect mix of fear and excitement. To me, that's a really beautiful thing. And one of the best people I've ever met, like that seems to be able to just find that limit and live on it all the time is a guy called Isaac Johnston. He's a outdoor photographer, adventurer, filmmaker, director, project manager, sort of kind of good at all things. But really you're, he is a person that lives and breathes outdoors kind of in a way like I've never met anyone else. I think when one of the first things that struck me when I first met you was within 10 minutes, we started talking about like the things that we love doing. And you're like, yeah, I love being outdoors. I lived a hundred days in a tent this year. And I was like, huh, I don't understand. How do you live a hundred days in a tent? Like I, yeah, like I do a lot of camping and I think I do five or 20 days a year or something like that, you know? (laughs) So it was kind of a, a whole different perspective on how all of that worked. Now, as a professional content creator, your main platform is Instagram. I think one of the things I really enjoy about your content is that you portray like an excitement for life that comes across in a really genuine way, but it's always there. You don't seem to let anything get in the way of making sure that you're having a really good time. And that's, I think, really unique. Sometimes it's riding a crappy vintage bike. Sometimes it's just riding the snowboard that you could get your hands on. And sometimes you get the opportunity to ride amazing equipment, great bicycles and great motorbikes, but none of that seems to color the experience you're having. For you, it seems to always be about having a great experience. So for this week's episode, I want to take a deep dive into understanding how to get the most from your environment, how to not let gear get in the way and to go about creating the kind of best adventures for you that you can have. So firstly, welcome again Thank <laughs> for you. round number yeah. two. And yeah, I kind of, before we dive into some of the kind of more difficult concepts, can we go back right to the start of how you got to being someone that loves living in the outdoors, how you kind of ended up in that position? Yeah, cool. So yeah, well, thanks for having me. I, I grew up in Montana, just south of Glacier National Park, which is a uh, huge mountainous area in in Montana and kind of famous in the United States, at least. But um, yeah, I grew up in an, in an area where there wasn't a lot of money. My parents didn't have a lot of money and uh, they were not into us like hanging out in town or even I mean, I can't even I think one time uh, I rode my BMX bike with my brother uh, eight miles one way to the bike shop in town. And instead of being allowed to like just like ride our bikes in town for a little bit or chill or like go shopping at some shops. It was like, go to the bike shop, get what you need, come right back home. So it did like a 16 mile round trip. <laughs> uh, and uh, a little side note is like, we used to go with our older brother and jump off of this bridge into the river. Uh, it was like a 30 foot jump. Uh, even at like uh, 10 years old, we were doing that. And, and we were, but my dad was like expressly like, you can ride into town, but 
your older brother's not with you, so you cannot jump off that bridge. Well, we totally jumped off the bridge. And as we're coming back up, like soaking wet to grab our bikes, my dad drove by. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I kind of like didn't care about like the rules about like what I could and couldn't do. I felt like pretty comfortable assessing the risk, even at a young age. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of like the lifestyle. And I even at 10 years old got a job with an outfitter, uh, which is like um, a guide, a hunting guide in and he would take us back into this wilderness area that was um, twice the size of Glacier National Park, just south of there. And uh, I worked for him until I was like 21 off and on. And it was such a remote area that we only saw one person who wasn't with our crew in that whole entire year or 20 or was 11 years of working back there. Wow. Um, so kind of shaped like the possibility. And that guy was like, his name is Greg Nelson. And he was like the best outdoors person, still the best outdoors person I've ever met. Like uh, him and his brother are some of the youngest people to ever climb Denali, which is the highest peak in the United States. Uh, like he, to me, that was the bar. Like that was normal. <laughs> and so I was like, probably never gonna hit that, but I was gonna be like right below that, right? Like in my comfort level. But what I didn't know is that pushed me to push my comfort level much higher than the base normal, like suburban lifestyle limit that that is normal in the United States. So whereas most people that I know read a lot of books about outdoors and got inspired and became outdoors people through that, I was just kind of like thrown into a culture where you were an outdoors person. And I was like a number eight, like I was like a, a level eight out of 10 where like most of my uh, relatives and, and friends, like bosses were all like level 10, like they could go climb Everest. And I was like, I'm never going to do that. So that's kind of my perspective and how I uh, kind of started and, and got into uh, wanting to be uh, in a life that was always adventuring. So prior to what you do now, you're an adventure photographer, you make outdoor content for loads of different brands, Land Rover, BMW. I think you did a shoot recently for ASICs. Before you ended up in the job you're in now, you were running a holiday letting and sales company. So it, it, that's that's kind of the gist of it, right? So when you when you did that change, how did that come about and how, because the jump from real estate to kind of being a photographer, seems pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it is, it is a big jump, but I think if you look at it in the trajectory of where, so I, I basically at 22 got married, stopped working for the outfitter and then spent my entire twenties, like what I call thrashing, like just trying to figure out like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, like teen years, going on all these epic adventures, you know, rafting like super remote rivers and working in the backcountry. Uh, you know, like literally we would carry around a shotgun called the, that we called the hamburger just in case a grizzly attack. So that's like my teen years. And then I get into my twenties and it's like, Oh, you got to work 40 hours a week at a desk <laughs> or, or you can like work construction and like hurt yourself for money, <laughs> you know? And I was like, Oh, this is like, Oh, this is not what I thought life was going to be. So I basically tried everything. I tried uh, working at a motorcycle store. Like I sold motorcycles and I only cared about dirt bikes and those ones don't have any margin on them. So people would come in and like want to buy like a big cruiser and I'd be like, uh, yeah, I guess it's okay. <laughs> like I literally couldn't fake sale or sell them that. So I like worked there for like six months, didn't sell shit, quit that. Like, you know, I did, uh, I started my own window washing company. I did all sorts of things. Um, and then I started to figure out like, dude, I'm like the best version of myself and what people want most from me is when I can kind of like impart my enthusiasm to them and get them excited about having an adventure. So that's how I kind of jumped into I think this, this version of that 
is being uh, like helping people rent holiday homes, basically, because uh, they kind of it's kind of an adventure and you give them a, a jumping off point to have an experience that they wouldn't have before. So I actually really liked that and was naturally good at it. Um, and because of that, we got a lot of inquiries to work with opportunities that we you wouldn't normally get if you just had like a mom and pop shop. So we grew that quite large. And part of the strategy to grow it was to use social media. Like that's kind of, of course, everybody does it now. But in 2015, there weren't very many places in our area that were really using like influencers or photographers to kind of brand that. And so that's what we did. We ended up um, working with a couple of well-known photographers who are both my friends now, Forrest Mankins and Alex Stroll, started working with them. They came up there. We, we got to know each other. And then I was like, well, you guys could just like take your normal like Geisha Park photo or like or I could just take you on these adventures that I've been doing my whole life and we could get really epic photos. So I didn't know anything about photos. I just knew if you want to tell a better story, let's go actually do a better story. And yeah. so that's how I got integrated into that. One thing led to another. They wanted me to help with logistics full time. And I quit my job and started helping them with logistics. And at the same time, learned how to take photos from these guys who are the best in the world. Very, uh, yeah, that's a, an interesting trajectory. So sometimes kind of the biggest adventures are, are those things that do push you out of your comfort zone, right? So you said about doing lots of things where you didn't really know what was going on. And, you know, in real life, that kind of translates like for me hitting a new jump for the first time is terrifying. Like every time it like pushes yeah. me way over. Yeah. And for some people, like changes in their life can be that as well. So what was the toughest part of you going in a completely different direction, like completely changing your work direction? Well, I So the toughest part, I think, was uh, there was a lot of doubt as to whether, like, okay, I can get this job and I've got this other job lined up, but, like, do people actually really want me to travel around the world and take photos? Like, is this going to continue? What happens if, you know, something like, you know, coronavirus hits? Am I going to be, like, destitute? <laughs> I had no idea. And you kind of have to, like, be okay with that fear. And then... I had to learn and kind of set up a system to where like, okay, what's my worst case scenario? Like for me, it was, uh, and my wife too also, she was very supportive, but she said like, look, I don't want you to like, just be talking about how you never should have quit your like stable job. I don't want to hear that. I don't want you to be like wallowing in that. So if you can figure out a way to deal with that, I'm fully on board. Let's do this. So my worst case scenario was like, okay, if we run out of money, I'll stop doing this and I'll stock uh, shelves at like Home Depot which is like a home improvement shop here in the United States. Uh, I would stock shelves there and at night and I promise I won't complain. And that's like, that's bad, but it's not like in the line at a homeless shelter to get free food bad. Right. So yeah. I knew that I wouldn't, I wouldn't deal with that. So uh, for me, it was kind of like uh, what Tim Ferriss calls fear setting. Like I walked through like, what's the worst case scenario? How hard would it be to get a job at a, at a vacation rental company somewhere else in the United States again? And with that kind of in mind, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been hard. Then I, I could certainly just go do whatever I want and consider it like an experiment. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a hard jump, but it, uh, it was one that once I kind of set the like worst case scenario that I was like, okay, let's just focus on the fun parts and, and making this the best we can. Okay, yeah, that's a really interesting kind of way of looking at it, actually, to kind of, yeah, take worst yeah. case scenarios and go, ah, it's not that bad. Because, yeah, there's definitely yeah. situations where maybe that is, yeah. So when it comes to adventure, it's kind of one of those words, like I said at the start, that means something different to everyone. So for you, what's your, what's your definition of adventure? Like, what does it mean to you? So I think adventure god it's such a wide and almost overused word but for me 
it's it's doing something um, that's exciting, partly new, and that has a little bit of a risk of failure and not risk of getting hurt or death or anything, but a risk of like, uh, for instance, it can be a small adventure. Like I just got a new vintage motorcycle. I probably shouldn't take it out because it's going to break down, but I'm going to go on like a weekend trip with it. That's going to be an adventure because like if it breaks down, this has happened to me, you're probably going to have to like push it on a trail around here, like six or seven miles back. It's going to be like, it's going to turn from like a cruisy little ride to like an Ironman push fest, you know, <laughs> nobody's going to tell you out. No. <laughs> so like, it's always to me has to have like an element of this could fail. And it also has to have an element of if this succeeds, the like the excitement I'll feel will be amazing. It'll feel victorious. Nice. Okay. So when you, when you do that stuff, um, are you, are you one of those people that likes to do it on your own? Or are you one of those people who like the experiences way better when you're doing it with friends? No, dude, I, I literally don't, I can't, I find no joy in solo adventure, like to a fault. Yeah. <laughs> like, Amen. I, I can count on one hand how many times I've gone out riding my, my dirt bike solo on trails that are two miles from my house. It's just not something I, so I'm like constantly inviting people to go do things because I think more than half of the joy for me is seeing other people like, like try a hill for the first time that is way above their skill level, suck at it, then try it again. And then try it a third time and make it like, I'm so excited about that, 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 that without that, it's just kind of like, ah, I'm just going around and like, you know, it's just practice to yeah. me if we're not doing it with other people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I've, it's not like, cause especially in adventure motorcycle world, there's a really big split between people who are approach it the way you approach it. And people who are like, no, nah, I just want to go and hang out in the hills on my own. And if I don't see anyone for three weeks, then I'm chill with that. And I definitely fall into the camp of yeah. I'd rather go and get stuck somewhere with my mates than like be in the hills on my own. So, yeah. Um, so oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I was into that because it, it's like, opens creatively it opens up so many doors to like i mean you can do anything if you don't have to rely on anybody uh, <laughs> but that's just not how i am man I, I like it's not how i'm built i wish it was but it's not um so going back to that thing you said to me when we first met about you spending a hundred days a year in a tent i think camping is one of those things that is also really divisive especially in kind of motorcycling some people love it. I love camping. I never feel like more comfortable than when I just wake up and I'm in a field, you know, but for a lot of people, it's not something they enjoy. And quite often I think it's not something they enjoy because they haven't quite figured out how to make it good yet. So is it something that you've always loved? Like, have you always just been one of those people who's happy in a tent, happy under the stars? And for those that aren't into camping so much or don't have lots of experience, how do you make it an experience that's decent enough for it to be a second home? Yeah. So, well, I think I have always liked camping, but there's also, uh, you know, I've, I've just always done it. It's not even that I've always liked it. It's just what my family did. It's what I did for work. And it's just like the area, like if you live here, uh, and you don't, it'd be like it being in Wales and not owning sheep, dude. It's like not, you can't, <laughs> I imagine that you own sheep. <laughs> There's always you know, sheep it's somewhere. Like something I always did. So yeah, but it, I mean, I've had more, I've probably had more shitty sleeping situations. Well, I may not. One quarter of my sleeping situations camping have been poor. Like I've woken up and been like, that sucked. But for me, it's not about like the camping so much as it is the convenience of not having to like go find a place or pay for a place to sleep. Cause you can camp in the United States, like so many places that are just free. 
just set it up and go. Mm. Um, so it, I think a lot of people don't like it because it's very vulnerable. Like you just have this piece of cloth between you and like where we're at, a bear attack is like what people are always thinking. Um, you know, I've, I've camped places, uh, uh, you know, like in Peru where we were like pretty close to big cities and, and like some of the people, some of the locals have told us like, Hey, you're probably gonna get robbed. So like that to me is worse than a bear. Kevin <laughs> even like come, come be like, I'm going to steal your shit. Uh, but so like, it, there's a lot of discomfort and vulnerability that comes with it. But the ways that I make it more comfortable are, uh, if dude, if, it, if I feel really like, like I, it's not, I'm not very afraid of bears, but if I just feel the vibe is off, dude, I just, I just pack up and move closer to the truck or just do whatever I need to get comfortable. Like I'm never committed to like suffering through it. Um, and like, if the weather looks really shitty and I'm not like fully on like a one week trip and there's no choice of getting out of it, I'll just bail dude. Like it, to me, it's not, this is, I'm going camping or I'm not going camping. It's like, I'm going to go set up to go camping. And if it sucks, I'm fully like willing to say, I'm not like Superman. I'm just going home. Um, but like some practical things are like get a good tent that, that um, you don't have to get an expensive one, but one that like has a lot of room. So like getting a one person tent is not great for one person. Getting a person tent is not great for two people. That's like the, that's like industry insight. Like they're always like a one person tent is like a half person tent. A two person tent is a two is a one and a half person tent. So I always rock a three person. Um, <laughs> on your own. Except for my, no, 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 because I never camp on my own. Like, so that's, uh, okay, yeah, I'm yeah. Always like yeah. But like, uh, I have a two person tent that's like ultralight that I'll bring moto camping in really good weather. And then you can open up the doors and it feels like, uh, it's a little bit bigger than it is. Um, the other thing too, is as I've gotten older, I really don't like sleeping on the ground on which is like a regular, like inflatable pad. It kind of sucks. So my solution is I bring two ultralight pads <laughs> and then you, the first one you go like hard, like stiff. And the second one you go like two PSI nice. and then it's like just as comfortable as being at home. Yeah. That's a hot uh, tip. And right then I'd say like the other pro tip is like people bring pillows and like, like, or like camp pillows and all that's bullshit. Just bring like your puppy down jacket. And then just like roll it up and in, in, into like a ball in your sleeping bag. And that's, then you're like super comfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, okay, here's another thing too. Uh, I don't know if you guys have this, but you probably don't. Mace, I guess is what you it's guys not a, call it. But here we, we don't, bears. we don't need it much, you know, <laughs> like the odd rabid yeah. sheep is so the like, biggest. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I mean like some people are afraid of like humans, right? So I always go with bear spray regardless of whether I'm going to a bear area because it, it, that bump in the night, if you have like a can of bear spray in your, in your hand, you're like, ah, fuck it. You just fall back asleep. But if that bump in the night and you have nothing, dude, you, you get like in this mental loop where you feel so vulnerable and you're like, I have to find out, but there's no way I'm unzipping my, my tent to look. Like, and then you're just like frozen, tired, and like this sucks. So like I always bring a can of bear spray unless I'm like international. Um, I always bring a can of bear spray with me just to be like, oh, well, whatever. Like, cause at the night when you're not logical and you're just like running off of like this injection of fear from a loud noise that happened, you just grab one of your bear spray and be like, I'm good. And it makes you fall asleep like instantly. It's like a, it's like an adult pacifier. <laughs> and by the way, I've never had to use it. I've never had to use it, but it's, it's nice to have in my hand. Nice. Yeah. I don't think I fancy meeting a bear middle of the night. Yeah. You definitely wouldn't sleep right afterwards. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> with, all things, and especially with adventure, gear is like a huge part of the equation. And generally, like, especially with our channel, it's always the biggest question on everyone's lips. Like, what bike should I have? What gear do I need? What tent should I buy? What helmet? What boots? Like, gear, 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 all the time. 
And I think one of my favorite themes of your videos is like gear is never the limit. Like you are so happy to buy the worst dirt bike for no money and go and have a great time with it. You made a yeah. video really recently, recently, like just coming out of winter where you used a P1, I think it was a P175 that you bought for like a hundred dollars. Yeah, $250. 250 yeah. or yeah. the big one for like a hundred dollars <laughs> and you use that as a snowmobile because you didn't have a snowmobile and okay it makes a great yeah. video but more importantly it like it didn't stop you having like a really good time so you had to walk a few hundred meters but you had like a really good adventure you went splitboarding for a day and you used just the tool that you had to hand to do it when it comes to navigating like the the issue of letting gear get in the way and it's potential resistance that that provides, is that an unconscious choice or is it something you constantly work on? And how do you kind of climb over that all the time? How do you for, like push yourself to to not get to the point where you're like, ah, oh, I just need a snowmobile. Like I don't want to walk five miles and this bike can't do it. Yeah, so, uh, so my default position is always to just like try something. And I'm never afraid to put in work for something that will be fun, but that might not be long lasting or that might not even work. I just like, I know that it'll be fun. So for the example you brought up, I, I got this PE 250 uh, for a hundred bucks US, uh, needed a little bit of work. So I ended up putting like some crank seals on it. I had to do some mechanical work, but to me that's not super hard and I have a little garage so I can do that. So I think overall it costs like under $300 for this PE and it was kind of preseason skiing and um, a buddy of mine's got a snowmobile, but I was like, you know what? I, I don't always want to have to like borrow a snowmobile and I'm not going to buy one because it's like snowmobiles are like five to 10 grand in the US and I you only use them in the winter. And I just, I don't know. I just like started thinking about that and thinking, and you start to think what you don't have, right? Like I don't have 10 grand or I don't have garage space. Or I don't have, and you're just like, you start to like optimize before you've even done the thing. You're optimizing for an adventure that you don't even know if you like doing, right? Or like you don't even know, even if you do like doing it, you don't even know if you're going to continue to do it often. So my default position is like, how can I just make what I have uh, work? And so the first thing is like, okay, well, I can drive my car to the bottom of the mountains and I could just hike, basically hike. I have a split board, so it turns into skis that can go up, mount, up the mountain. I could just skin, they call it, up to the top of the mountain and then do that. But that adds like three and a half hours of up uh, for your like runs down. And I was like, well, that's, you know, where the fun factor is not super high still. Well, it's preseason. So like the road has a, like several inches of snow on it and a lot of ice. Um, and it's all kind of been run over by snow cats by, or by snow snowmobiles. Um, so it's not doable for a regular motorcycle, but what if I'd like put a bunch of like literally like screwed screws, metal screws into the, the knobbies and just like ran it. Like, of course they're going to fling out. They're not designed for that, but I bet I could do it once. And so I bought three dollars worth of screws, put them all in my tires, put like three hundred screws into my tire, and then just went for it. And it totally, totally worked. Like we got within uh, probably a quarter of a mile away from the parking lot where you'd normally stop with your snowmobile before there was too much snow and we were just like bogged down. Oh, and I also brought a friend and towed him behind the motorcycle as well. So like it was like a two-person operation. So uh, yeah, like okay, so. I always want to do something and then optimize. So like, of course, now I want a snowmobile or even better, like, uh, uh, you know, a snow bike, like a timber sled or something mm -hmm. like that. I want that now. Like, I don't want to do that all the time. And clearly the conditions were just right for that to work, but I wanted to just go do it. And I wanted to see if it was possible. And I find that fun, uh, to try and see what's possible. Also, like 
I'm a gearhead in that I want like gear to do everything. I never want to not have the gear that I need to get out and do things. But I'm not a gearhead in that I care what other people think about how cool my gear is. So, uh, like, like uh, there's actually a helmet hanging up right here that's um, it's probably not safe. It's from like the 70s, uh, but it's like perfect for riding vintage bikes, and it got given to me. Uh, and then there's another helmet hanging right next to it that's like a cheapy uh, like motocross helmet that was ugly, so I painted it white. And then besides that, is there's a $450. Uh, uh, I don't even know what it is. It's like, it's like a dual dual sport helmet. I can't remember what brand it is because I don't even care. <laughs> like, so it's just whatever I needed at the time. I just got. Um, but I didn't stop and go like, oh, I need this gear. I can't do it. There's never like, I need this gear. I can't do it. I would ride from here to South America in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt if that's what if that's what I had. Like, the goal is always the exciting thing of doing it. The, and whatever gear I need, it, it, it'll help. And generally, I try things and if it's so annoying that it takes away from the joy of doing it like riding in a t-shirt would be you know if it was like cold then i'm like okay well i probably should get a moto jacket like that's probably going to make it a little bit better more sustainable and i'll just have more joy but like whereas most people don't want to be embarrassed in having the wrong gear or don't want to like have the uncomfort or the discomfort of having the wrong gear i'm that in in my matrix actually makes it uh almost a better adventure because like if i can do it with this i can do it with anything mm. Yeah, nice. So that's a good way of looking at it. So on the flip yeah. side of that, sometimes, like you say, a little bit of gear is necessary, especially when you're getting into more adventurous situations, like you're going backcountry, you're kind of getting a long way away from civilization. So when way like, especially where you live, so what are the kind of bits of gear that you do carry where you're like, okay, if I'm going two days into the backcountry and we're hiking in there, I'm definitely taking this, this and this because you need it. Like it's just not safe without it. Yeah. So, so the first thing is like, you gotta have, you gotta have shelter. So a good tent, you can't just do like a, like a Walmart tent, uh, and like a Walmart sleep bag. You gotta have like good stuff. The lighter it is, the further you can go. Um, but it doesn't have to be light, but it's just gotta be good, warm stuff. And you gotta have some waterproof stuff. Um, so like, again, not super expensive. Like I have a $70 rain jacket. Um, but I also have like a $500 nice shell now, but I didn't start out with that. Um, yeah, you want to have like gear that wicks, you know, so like your underlayers, like I use a lot of wool stuff that's been given to me by sponsors, but even just like cheapy, uh, poly pro like workout gear, as long as it doesn't like cotton where it gets wet and it doesn't dry out forever. Like that's important because if you sweat, you don't want to like freeze to death. So you need to like ensure your downside uh, basically of like, if I get wet and cold, am I going to stay wet and cold for days? Um, around here, <laughs> you gotta have a way to get warm. So I always bring uh, like something to light a fire and I always, always bring um, a lot of people use jet boil or like some sort of uh, MSR, like little fuel canister stove. I didn't want to pay for a jet boil cause they don't like, they're not, they kind of like use a proprietary pot system and stuff. And I wanted to use my own that I had. So I literally got like, there's like a $9 like Chinese copy of an MSR whisper light. And it has like the clicker. So you don't even need a match. So I bring that with me everywhere. It's tiny, like this big. Um, I'm big on like tiny things, even though sometimes they're more expensive because uh, I don't like, because I usually travel with my camera gear and that usually weighs just as much as like whatever gear I can bring. So I don't want to like be carrying an 80 pound pack on a motorcycle or hiking. Like that's not my vibe. Um, I'd rather just have less. So I think like stuff to stay warm, wick sweat and dry is important. And then some way to like, you know, 
get get uh, a fire started, you know, is important for where we're at here. And then the other thing too is, I, like again, bear spray. I just always walk with bear spray. <laughs> I'm gonna buy some just for, like just for it. just for the fun uh, of it. <laughs> around here, it's a thing. You know, I don't carry it for people around here, uh, but like, it's recommended around here. Like, uh, I live on the river uh, in in a place in a town called Big Fork, and no joke, I was FaceTiming with my mom the other day, and my eight year old daughter's like, "Hey, there's a bear coming down the river," and there's just like a grizzly bear floating down the river, just like, and then he like grabbed a stick and was like chewing on it, and then he just, I walked outside, and he like saw me and was like, "Oh, I'm out," and he just like left uh but so like that's like a thing here where you got to carry that stuff and whatever i've never i've never had a bear encounter like where it was sketchy but you know it makes my wife happy when i'm carrying it i saw a i saw a swan nearly kill a guy around the corner here once but you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so as someone that grew up on a farm um i can imagine you spent a lot of time using your hands to solve problems and you've probably got like loads of boy scout skills now i'm like the opposite of that i don't have any boy scout skills i only learned to tie a slip knot like three weeks ago because my girlfriend taught me so i'm much more of like a zip tie and kind of two-part metal bodge it together and hope it works type of person when it comes to that outdoor situation that you spend a lot of time in what are the kind of skills that actually you think a lot of people should know that maybe they don't you know like is it not tying or something like that um yeah uh dude i'm just not tying because i don't know how to tie knots <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, I i i'm like a king ghetto rigger like if we're out in the bush I am going to just ghetto rig something as best I can. Um, like zip ties and duct tape are just better than rope to me. <laughs> I'm not a Boy Scout. I grew up just ghetto rigging stuff and making it work. So there's not something that I can't make work with like a simple set of tools. So I, I always go with like a Leatherman uh, and a pocket knife. Like I, so I brought a pocket knife to Mongolia when I met you. Yeah. And I just like, I remember everybody being like, like what? I, I <laughs> like, did as well. I just like carrying a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like it's not like people were like, "What would you need a pocket knife for?" I'm like, "Everything." Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> of course. Yeah. So like, I'm always carrying like something so I can modify it. Like I don't care if it's just like a set of screwdrivers. I want to have like the ability, the ability to get a rig. But um, for me, it's just about being creative and getting it home and then fixing it right. Um, like I'm on a motorcycle or even like, you know, I was uh, I was in Big Sur, California, camping, and there was so much wind that it like ripped part of my tent. And so I literally use zip ties and duct tape to like, like put it back together and like get a stake in the ground and like just last the night. And the problem is, is that I forgot about it. And then I set up my tent the other day and I realized it's still duct tape and zip tied. But no, man, you don't, you don't need anything except for the willingness to try and not be frustrated when it fails and fix it again and again and again. And then you just slowly learn like, oh, if I fix it with that duct tape there, it's probably not going to work. I need to like triple up on the duct tape or whatever, you know, like there's no just do adventures where you're not going to die if something fails. And then when they fail, just learn that way. Right. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the deal. It's like, just be willing to have it be kind of shitty. Yeah. I think you touched on something like really good just then when you said like, you've got to be comfortable with it. Uh, sorry what yeah yeah you've got to be comfortable with it breaking all the time and not get frustrated at it like the not getting frustrated about things going wrong is like a really big difference between having a good time and like having a terrible time so yeah i think that that's probably that would be my highest uh like if you looked at like adventure skills on like you know they're like a, a bar graph you know you like video games my highest is like when shit goes wrong i am 
almost always smiling. I might be cussing, but I'm also smiling and laughing about it. Like, that's just how, like, like uh, I did an adventure like this winter and we were, um, we're doing like a quick out and back of, of skinning again on a snowboard. And we got in two miles. We hadn't even hit like the good part where we could snowboard down yet. And I broke one of my skis, which is half of, you know, the skis are half of the snowboard where you get to the top. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I guess I'll just keep going. And uh, then we kept going and we ended up skiing 10 miles up and I broke it in the first two miles and then snowboarding down on the worst snow of the year um, with a broken snowboard. And it was totally less than ideal. But like for me, that was like way more fun than just going back to the car. Uh, so like that's something that I've always tried to cultivate with myself is like, OK, it's OK to feel frustrated. It's just my reaction should be laughter and like, OK, well, let's let's figure it out and keep going. And then you don't. You don't have, uh, you won't get FOMO that you missed out because your shit broke. You'll just be like, ah, oh, I didn't miss out. It was just a totally different adventure than I thought. And like that one took, was to take three hours. We were out, out there for five and a half, and we didn't get back until like way past dark, and we're like dead. And it was like full on marathon vibes of like exhaustion, but wasn't what we expected. But dude, it was so fun. And and I guarantee you, I would never talk about that adventure if that hadn't happened. It became way more memorable. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's another good point is like, for me, the, the times where the things go wrong the most are the ones you enjoy the most, right? They're the ones you always remember afterwards. Um, yeah. So before this podcast, I did a little bit of Isaac Johnson research. I went around and like listened to a bunch of podcasts and in one of them, you touched upon some of the moments like through your history where you've almost like had imposter syndrome. You didn't quite believe that you belonged in that situation when it comes to exploring and especially on a motorcycle, I think for a lot of people, including myself, that is a huge hurdle when it comes to being nervous of your skills and nervous of the environment. How do you overcome that? Like, even if it's not necessarily in an outdoor environment, how do you push through that moment where you don't quite feel like you're good enough to do something? So, I think there's like two versions of that nervousness. There's like nervous, like I'm going to get hurt or I'm going to fail. And like, there's consequences, but I think the much more common one is I'm going to look like an idiot. Um, like people are going to laugh and make fun of me. Like, like let's say you're going to a motorcycle race, like an off-road motorcycle race and you've never done it, which I've actually never done. I've never raced motorcycles. I don't know why it's just like, there's not very many around here and uh, just never kind of been plugged into that community. But I'm sure if I went, I'm going to, even though I can ride a motorcycle pretty good, I'm going to feel like, like, oh man, I'm an imposter. Like I shouldn't be here. I'm not a motorcycle racer. Um, that's, that's not a real fear. Like I'm not thinking like I'm going to, uh, I'm going to like fail and hurt myself. I'm thinking like people are going to like think that I'm a poser. And to me, when I feel that it's, that's only caused by my ego of wanting to be a motorcycle racer. Right. So I just, am like, well, I don't, I'm not a motorcycle racer. I'm willing to try this. And if people want to laugh at me, then my posture is going to be like, I know I suck, but Hey, how do you do it? And I'm going to be inquisitive and I'm going to be, uh, like just base level, um, be like, yeah, I'm really dumb. I don't know how this works. Will you help me? And just let them, when they laugh at me, I'm going to laugh with them because like, I don't know how to do this, but I'm really excited. And will you help me? And what I found is that that not only turns my, um, imposter syndrome around, but it also is very endearing to people who are experts and they want to help me. Um, and then it like accelerates your learning. So that that's how I usually deal with imposter syndrome. And and, I, and it's not that I don't get it because I certainly do. I mean, when I met you, I was doing my first like hosting gig. And the whole time I'm thinking like, dude, I like I even told the folks at BMW, like I'm not a host. I'm going to suck at this. And 
that doesn't make you perform better. <laughs> like, like being like, I'm an imposter, doesn't make you perform better. But instead I was like, guys, I don't know how to do this. And I would ask a ton of questions and ask him like, how was that? And I didn't find my value on my performance at the, at the moment. I just said like, look, they picked me for a reason. I know who I am and maybe this isn't, maybe I'm going to blow it, but this is a fun opportunity and I get to ride motorcycles. So uh, let's just be, you know, inquisitive, ask a lot of questions and, and uh, not be like offended because they're making fun of me or pointing out. Nobody made fun of me. They were all really nice. They probably did behind my back. They should have, (laughs) you know, like not attaching my ego to my performance of something that I'm not sure about. Is, is a surefire way to be like, okay, well, if I suck, then I'm not an imposter because I don't know how to do this. How, how, I'm not posing. I'm now posing as somebody who doesn't know how to do this. I'm just lucky enough to get to do it. Mm-hmm. So when you when you have like the, the fear associated with those other things where there maybe is like a little bit of risk and you're not quite sure of your ability, how do you, how do you navigate that? Uh, I mean, most often, like, uh, just take it one step at a time. Like, I just try a little more, feel it out. So like in, in, in an instance where, um, last summer I did uh, this hike, uh, with a friend of mine and we decided to do this pretty gnarly route up the side of a mountain. And uh, I'm not a rock climber at all. And I'm actually, uh, I have a, a fear of heights response. I'm not like as afraid of heights as I used to be, but I do have that response. And there was a section where we had to kind of free climb. We're about a thousand feet above the valley floor on a, on a pretty steep slope. And then there was a section where we had to climb like a 20 foot cliff face, easy climb, like anybody could do it. Um, probably, you know, like you don't need climbing or whatever, uh, climbing shoes or anything like that. Well, we probably should have had a rope. And like, that was really, really scary for me. I had to like start doing it, get down, sit with my back against the wall, talk myself through it, breathe through it. But, you know, I, I just was like knowing that my mind was playing tricks on me, that it, I'm not going to fall. Cause there's no way I can fall on this. I've never fallen on something this easy before. That was you know, it wasn't a performance thing so much as an exposure thing and just taking it, just testing it and knowing that if I say, no, I don't want to do this, that's totally fine. And one of, we was with three guys or two other guys, myself included. One of the guys decided to just sit right there. He didn't go up and there was no shame or anything. Um, just slightly testing the waters. And then of course, the main reason I did it is because one of the guys was super comfortable. And for me, it's always about having somebody more experienced or more comfortable in that situation who believes that we can do this that really helps because as soon as it gets sketchy and nobody in the party believes that we can do it, then it's probably time to turn back. <laughs> that's a really good, that's a really good like baseline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and you also got to trust like the people you're with, right? Cause like if, if the guy who's like, yeah, we can do this is like the guy who's always getting hurt. And like, it's kind of, you don't trust him because he's just like always balls to the wall. He's like whiskey throttle and everywhere, you know, <laughs> like, I'm not trusting that guy. Like, thanks, bro, but no. So you just got to feel that out on, like, a, literally, I was feeling that hike out on a step-by-step basis. Always, like, checking in, being like, is this just fear of, of exposure? Or is this, like, my mind going crazy? Or am I actually not capable of doing that? And when we get to the point where I'm not capable, then it's like, okay, well, I'm not capable. Let's just turn around. Cool. No shame. So... I think well, I one of the things I find really interesting about your approach is just how kind of varied and simple you seem to keep it. Now, for most outdoor people, they ended up focused in like one place. For example, like a moto guy becomes a moto guy. Your hikers, like your Instagram hikers, they just hike. They only talk about hiking. Yeah. But you seem to have like crossed that border where you do everything. You kind of ride horses, you like ride bicycles, motorbikes, you hike, you snowboard, you ski, you're kind of much broader with it. And you do a lot of moto camping, 
but you do it in a way that is very different to everybody else that kind of does moto camping in quite an outward way. You like, I've never seen you ride uh, an adventure bike outside of adventure bike work that you've done. So like when you've done stuff with BMW, you've ridden a GS cause they've asked you to for like a video, but I've never seen you ride one. The most kind of real bike I've seen you ride is like when Sherco gave you some dirt bikes to ride. But every other time you go motor yeah. camping, you're on a vintage bike, something that you've kind of pulled out your shed. You never seem to have any gear with you. So within that, what's your ideal adventure bike scenario and how do you carry your gear on a bike like that? Like you don't seem to have panniers or you just turn up and there's a tent and a bike. And I'm like, oh, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've done a, a, a lot of adventure riding, but I've never, you're right. Like until BMW gave me an adventure bike to ride, I never rode one. The, the, I think the biggest barrier is like, uh, like I didn't have 20K for an adventure bike, so I wasn't going to have an adventure bike, right? Uh, like they're expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and and around where I live, actually, there's so much single track that literally goes up in the mountains where like a trials bike is much more suited to it than an adventure bike. So for me, it, it's it's also a practical decision uh, is that I, I love to be able to like go from uh, the road next to my house to a smaller like forest road to the trail and to the top of the mountains. I don't have to stop when I get to the single track um, like that always. I did some some bigger, you know, like uh, KTM 690 adventures back uh, probably 10 years ago now. And it always used to annoy me that when we'd get to like a pretty simple, like, uh, you know, a pretty simple, like uh, four or five foot tall, like roll rock rollover, that going up that it would take like three guys like pushing and tugging to get it over that. And I'm like, dude, if I just had like, if I had like a 450, I could just wrap this, you know, let's just preload the fork and boom, right over it. Um, so that's just my style. Uh, is that I just I don't like that limitation. But dude, if I had an adventure bike, I would certainly use it, and I would I would do uh, more adventure bike shaped adventures. It's not it's not that I don't like them because dude, riding them is epic, super fun. But uh, I don't want to uh, I don't want to like spend a significant chunk of my resources on the equipment for the adventure. I want to spend that chunk of resources always on the adventure. So I would rather have three, four thousand dollars spent on like a from here down to Baja trip that I would take three, four thousand dollars and have a three three to four thousand dollar motorcycle that I now can only ride around my house. That's just like I'd rather break down because I didn't buy the right bike on that big adventure than than actually just have a nice bike that doesn't break down and I only ride it around my house. So that's just how I'm built, right? I'm comfortable with that situation. And as far as like how I moto camp. Yeah. I almost always ride a backpack or wear a backpack. doesn't matter how big it is. Um, and the reason why is not like, I know it's frowned upon like, Oh, it's going to you know mess you with your riding or whatever. Um, the main reason why is cause like if I'm climbing a hill that I have no business climbing with luggage and I want to get off, I want no bags behind my legs cause I want to be able to like swing the back leg off and get off without just eating shit. I don't want bags to like get broken or like panniers are always like you dump the bike and they're like splitting open or ripping off their mounts. That, that's my experience anyway. I'm sure there's like super good gear that doesn't do that all the time, but like mine are always doing that probably because I'm buying subpar gear. <laughs> so I've just taken, <laughs> and I'm, I'm also doing multi-discipline adventures. So I'll ride a motorcycle to the top of the mountains and then we'll get to a wilderness area and I'll hike in, you know, 20, 30 miles. So I need to have stuff that goes in my back anyway. So I not just have, that setup. 
So I'd, I'd legit, I used to have like, um, uh, uh, gosh, it was, um, I don't, I didn't even remember the brand now, but it was like a, uh, a giant loop coyote, I think is what it was. And it used to go like over the back of, you know, connected, went over the back of the seat of my bike and connected to the foot pegs and stuff. And I literally didn't like it because I couldn't get off the bike fast enough. Uh, and then also like that one was a weird shape. So you're like stuffing shit in like this U formation. Whereas like, if it's just in my backpack, throw it in there and away we go. So I don't, I'm not bothered by that. Um, and again, I like, I would rather spend money on a multi-purpose gear that I can go snowboarding with, mountain biking with, hiking with, and motoing with, than just have moto gear that's really nice. Yeah. So along that same kind of lines of you being a little bit more on the outside of like traditional, like typical adventure motorcycling, you kind of do it a little bit your own way. You're kind of in a broader spectrum. Being someone that's looking in a little bit more, what are the things that seem a bit odd to you about that scene? Like when you came on the GS chat, uh, the GS trophy in Mongolia, you were kind of the f the main person there that I noticed that was like not a motorcyclist, like everyone else was a motorcyclist. So what stood out to you as just being really a little bit odd and you didn't really understand? Uh, you know, so I, I want to say that first, the first thing that stands out is like, I love the, the, the atmosphere. Everybody's so amped on riding these bikes and so amped on each other and like the camaraderie that it was like super, super good time. But I think the, the weird part to me is that, uh, all these guys want to go like mega hardcore off road. And yet they're like riding, I don't know. What does that bike weigh? Five, five, 550 pounds. Yeah. And I kept thinking like, dude, if you guys just like suffered on the road a little bit more, you could probably like, like, okay, so here's an, here's the thing. We had to skip dune day because a couple of people got hurt and like, is these massive dunes in the Southern part of Mongolia, right along the border with China. Epic, like the most technical part. Um, and you're a technical rider. I love, I don't know if I'm a technical rider, but I love the technical bits. Like they're my favorite part. Like I would never ride pavement ever. If you, if it wasn't, a, you know, if I didn't have to get somewhere, <laughs> like, I don't care. I just like, I just want to be off road. I want to get sideways. Uh, on some dirt roads and then hit some single track and like do some trials techniques on a dirt bike. That's my vibe. So like, I'm looking forward to these dudes and because like there was a lot of inexperienced riders there, a couple got hurt. They thought the technical and it was the right call. The technical day would be too much for the size of the bikes and stuff. And I kept thinking, dude, if we just had like smaller bikes that didn't like require so much effort to, to hold them up or they didn't get stuck in the sand so easy uh we could have done that so that kind of to me is like all these people are in love with these adventure bikes and they really love adventure and i kept thinking guys like he's like try to bias your adventure a little bit more towards the adventure side and not like the going between town side like it's super comfortable you get on like those bikes are awesome you get on pavement you're going you know 100k between like towns in mongolia and you know you're you're like i had a i had the bmw helmet you know and it's, the like, headset listening to, like podcast and yeah i go ahead comfortable as hell but i'm like sacrifice that comfort let's go do something that's just going to be like amazing you know in these dudes so that's that to me is like the one thing that i kind of don't understand about the adventure bike community is like uh their their willingness to to trade more adventure or more comfort like it doesn't it's counterintuitive to me <laughs> 
That's uh, that's pretty. Um, yeah, I think it's quite interesting because in the last few years in adventure motorcycling, I think a lot of people have had that realization that what they really need for a bike to do what they want to do is something that's more within their ability set. So the bikes are getting smaller and lighter, and a lot of people are choosing bikes that match exactly what you said. They're trying to build these bikes that are like 500 EXEs or something, so they can still kind of get yeah. to the edge of their yeah. ability everywhere they go. Um, so along the same lines of like gear that we've talked about with you being quite minimalist, when I met you as well, you were doing a lot of photos for your Instagram and it kind of blew my mind, like as a fellow photographer, how comfortable you were with like a tiny amount of gear. You were like, yeah, I've just got two lenses. And I thought that was really cool because it's kind of, again, photography world is the opposite. You need like a big camera. You need this, you need that. Oh, I got to get this lens. It's going to like elevate me. Um, and especially where you're riding a motorcycle a lot or you're hiking, what kind of camera kit are you carrying? Because your photos on Instagram are some of like the nicest adventure photos you'll find anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're right. I, I am not much of a gearhead when it comes to camera stuff. So um, while I've always thought that motorcycles were like really cool and like talking motorcycles is cool, like the guys that I knew growing up that were into cameras were like nerds. They were the same people who were talking about like Star Wars all the time. So for me, like... That shit, like, not something to talk about. You start talking about, like, ISO and dynamic range, like, I'm checked out. Like, I know all about that stuff, but it's not, like, something I bring up at a party to talk about. So, um, for me, I just want what works. It has to be tough because, like, dude, I the only time I've ever broken a lens is actually when I went to Mongolia. And I stupidly – but I love to know where the limit is. I put it, like, on the bum bag on my – I'm not even in the backpack. I put it on the bum bag. Uh, of the gs and then rode across mongolia and it broke wouldn't you believe that <laughs> like, like that's a violent place to put something <laughs> um, so uh for me right now i'm using a canon eosr i normally use a canon uh, 5d mark IV body um but the eosr has the flippy out screen and i do a lot of videoing of myself now so that's pretty mm -hmm. sweet has the same sensor pretty good um so yeah, I'm, I'm using that uh, as the body. And then I have a Canon 24 to 70 uh, and a Canon uh, 16 to 35. And that's what I shoot everything on. Now, I, I have projects where I rent bigger lenses, like 70 to 200s, or uh, there's like a Sigma 150 to 600 that I love. But I use them so rarely that I just rent them when I need them um, or when I get bored and I just want to try something else or have a project in mind. Um, and to be honest, like, I can just get uh, I can get companies to send me loaner gear too, so that's kind of nice. That keeps me from buying stuff. But as far as like camera gear, I have my drone, which is the Mavic Two. Um, I have a GoPro Hero Seven for for video that I use occasionally, and uh, that's pretty much it, dude. Like for me, it, doing all right. So so for me, the strategy with photos is like I'm going to go do something interesting. I'm going to take the most interesting photos of that thing, and then I'm going to. Uh, that I'm, I'm going to post them. But if, if I can't, if I have to carry all this gear and I'm like worrying about my lens cap, that's it. That's another thing too. I never ever use a lens cap. Cause it's just like, why I, I don't, I'm going to risk a lens scratch so that I don't have that extra step. I just want it to be like seamless. I want to pull it out of my bag, um, take a picture and then stuff it back in my bag and like live the adventure. To me, that's going to make a more authentic photo. So all the gear stuff is like, let's just get what works, what looks good and uh like what looks good in post and then just like stuff it in the bag and go i don't actually care uh that much about like pixel quality and all that stuff like i care about it enough to like research it once go with that not research it for years, pick the next best move on and everything in between there is just about like having a camera like i won't get a camera that's not weather sealed because i'm never going to put it in protection never unless i'm actually going underwater i'm going to use it 
rain or shine, snow, whatever, all the time, not care about whether it breaks or not. Because also pro gear is, re is repairable. So like risking it for a photo and getting a cool photo is worth so much more than like having it in a protective gear and being like, oh, I don't want to take it out. It's going to take forever. I'm not going to get that shot. That thing is now a paperweight, dude. Like you need to have it be uh, accessible at all times and, and able to hand, handle abuse so that you can have it out and running at all times. Because the only value to me in a camera is the story that I can tell with it. If I can't tell a story with it because it's, you know, too protected or shitty gear, then then it's not for me. That's all that matters. All right. Yeah. Awesome. So when it when it comes to the adventures you do and how uh, how do you come up with them? Uh, are they kind of things that you look at and you're like, okay, this is going to make a great story for work, or are they always kind of born out of that? I'm really stoked on this. This is like a great idea. And I think this is going to be really fun. And if we get some good stuff, we'll go and do that anyway. So when I first started uh, with photography, I definitely was looking for, I mean, I loved all the adventures that I was doing, but I was looking for the most photogenic places. You know, I would go to a lake at sunrise or sunset, you know, and, and like set up camp and stuff like that. And that was kind of what I needed at the time to get good at photography and kind of build momentum for my photography. But I quickly got bored of that. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to go to another lake at sunrise. Dude. Like, it's like painful to wake up at sunrise. It's beautiful. But, you know, so what? Like a photo of a sunrise at the lake is like pretty ubiquitous. So I would now my strategy, it's not even a strategy. I just got bored with it like a couple of years ago. I just said, you know what? I'm just going to do things that I have curiosity about. So like, can I go ride this segment or what does this area look like in the spring? Or can I, you know, go do this or what would it be like to, uh, you know, ski or snowboard this one peak in the winter? You know, like those are, it always starts with like a question, like, what if I did this? And then I'm always looking for ways and weather and other stuff that I can kind of mix the idea in with that I can get a good photo, but that's always secondary now. Like to me, it's always Let's let's figure out the story, the adventure that it is, I'm curious about, and then tell a story about how I'm curious about it. And the people that are curious about the same things I am, they'll hopefully like it. And that that's you know, it's proven to be true is that people are into the same things I'm into. Not everybody, right? Like I don't have a bazillion followers, but the people that really care about what I'm doing, they find you if you just consistently scratch your own edge. Yeah, that's a like, that's a really nice way of putting it, I suppose, is to kind of just chase those things that kind of itch under the surface a little bit all the time um so that's it i'm kind of i'm out of questions i've got nothing more interesting to ask you um <laughs> so uh yeah kind of well firstly thank you very much for your time um it's been awesome it's been very informative um for the people that are watching uh, feel free to kind of tell them where to find you and what you're up to at the moment cool yeah uh well, I appreciate you having me. It's always fun to chat with you. Uh, um, I don't think everybody knows, but since we met in Mongolia, we haven't actually hung out again. But I think we talk like at least once every couple months to say hello and stuff. As I appreciate what you do. And I think that uh, not only are you a great writer, but you just have like a really keen sense of fun and, and, uh, and a good sense of humor too. So that's been cool. Uh, what I'm doing uh, lately is I'm actually making a video workshop on how to go from your full-time job to a full-time freelancer, like how to be a full-time creative. So I'm making a video workshop with a friend of mine's company um, called Strollworks, and we're making that. So that's, I've been filming that yesterday and today, and I spent all last week and the week before writing that. So I'm working on that. That'll come out soon. You can find me um, at Isaac S. Johnston. So like Isaac, I'd say A-C-S as in Sam Johnston, 
anywhere on the internet. Like that's my, that's my handle. So you can find me on all the social platforms and whatever, but my primary gig is Instagram and YouTube. So yeah, nice. check it out if you want. Totally. I think you're in your YouTube channel is probably one of the most underrated YouTube channels uh, that I follow for sure. It's uh, underappreciated well, massively. Yeah, if I could make videos on the consistency that you make them, then I'd probably uh, see a lot more value there from other people. But, dude, it's like I'm like on a once a month schedule and it's not working out for me at this point. This, you know, it's hard to juggle a photographer and a YouTuber at the same time. It's like a it's, a, yeah. it's a full brain switch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, but try my best. Awesome. So for everyone else that's new here, if you haven't seen this podcast before, this is something that we do on a weekly basis. Um, and it's a Patreon only thing. So our Patreon subscribers have access to this podcast. And the next one is like a really moto specific podcast. So we're going to be looking at how to get into your first rally. For those of you that don't know, rally racing is, it's basically like uh, ultra running, but on motorbikes. So you go from place to place, you have to find your own way and you have to do it for a really, really long distance. So it's kind of a guide on, yeah, how to, how to make that jump from just being like a regular motorcyclist into kind of, yeah, a little bit, a little bit more. So thank you very much for watching and, uh, yeah, I'll see you next week.